Simon. Uh, I'm a leader here at Midtown Church. It's so good for you guys to be here today. Uh, happy December. What the heck is December? Um, during this time of year, I'm an educator. I work as a school counselor, and so I become a, an amateur meteorologist during this time of the year. So I've been looking at the GFS model, seeing if there's any inkling of some snow. And I, I remember last weekend we had some snow, guys, and I was literally just like at the window watching it like, oh. But it wasn't that much. So uh, maybe we'll see some more. I do have some really bad news. The next two weeks, we will not have a, a major snowstorm, I believe. This is my current forecast. That could change. But maybe if we have a little bit of faith, we will have some. And that is my lame attempt to segue into what we're, we're going to be talking about today. And that is Advent of Faith. Or as the passage uh, we just read, the lack of faith. You see, I believe it's safe um, to say that we, in current circumstances, we're struggling. The community's struggling. Uh, the cost of goods are way high. Uh, wages are the same. It's a really difficult time, uh, especially uh, for our community. And it can be disheartening to tithe every week, to serve the church, you know, give up, give up our time, only to struggle both financially and then in return to struggle emotionally. And it becomes even more disheartening when we look around uh, to each other or to people in uh, Kansas City in general, and we see all the blessings that God has given others, and uh, we are still finding ourselves to, to, we're just struggling. But it's a lot easier, of course, to see uh, those blessings rather than the struggles that those people are experiencing, especially in this social media age. Um, <clears throat> it may even make us jealous of one another, and we could even ask, what about me, God? I was reading a study uh, out of this a college in San Diego, it's University of California in San Diego, and it was a really interesting study. They were, they were trying to determine which age group was the most envious, which age group was the most jealous. And what was really interesting about this study, while I was reading it, it really was dependent on what domain of envy uh, would show which, um, what, the, what those people group would experience. For instance, uh, those who were in the age group of 20 to 30 years old, 40% of them had described being envious of those around them over the, the domain of envy of social success or romantic success. Whereas people over 50 years old, only 15% of those uh, experience envy for social success, which is really interesting. The, the study kind of got me questioning, what is prosperity? What does prosperity look like? Is it a healthy body? Is it being socially successful? Um, or is it being financially secure? And I believe that question, just like with a study, it's going to be a subjective to where you're at in life. Uh, by the way, I think that the most envious group that was found in the study was from ages 20 to 30. <laughs> so if you're in that age group, you got to work on yourself. Um, so <laughs> I, I ask you, depending on where you're at in life, what is prosperity to you? Uh, during one day of work, again, working as a school, a school counselor, I had a student in my office, and we played this tic-tac-toe game. And we don't use pen and paper. We have these like little blocks. Uh, and, and whenever you play the block, there's questions written on the side of the block that you have to ask the person before you can play your block. And the question that my student had chose to ask me is, what is success? 
And I looked at him, prepared to give him the best answer possible. And I said, uh, I don't know. Like, I never really thought about it. And I, I question if that's prosperity for you, too. How would you define it? Is it having a house with a couple of cars? Maybe being able to take a vacation anywhere you want? Uh, or is it just not having to live paycheck to paycheck? Uh, I think that as we, what makes this question so difficult is, again, is based on how you define it. So, based on the definition that you, you've been thinking about, are you experiencing prosperity in your life right now? And if the question is no, this can be really difficult for us. Because then we look, again, looking around at people who are being prosperous, we become envious. And we even maybe even look at those who aren't followers of God and see how successful and how prosperous they are. And then you may even ask, God, where are you at? Where are you at for the things I have been asking for? And there's three things that can happen with this line of questioning. The first being that we become envious, of course, uh, those around us. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a brilliant quote on this. He says, envy is insatiable. The more you concede to it, the more it will demand. With envy, we begin to focus on what we lack rather than what we have. And our focus becomes narrowed to only ourselves. We no longer see our neighbors as neighbors, but rather as competitors. The second impact is our faith can be challenged, especially if there's been something you've been praying about for a really long time and you haven't really seen anything happen. Maybe it's like a, a healing in your body. You've been praying for it for a long time. Uh, in years of praying for that thing and no progress has been made, it can really just shake your faith. Maybe even to the point where when you were once eager to ask for prayer for that topic whenever you were at a gathering, you no longer even raise your hand to ask for prayer. The third impact is that we fear vulnerability. Uh, there is a some subconscious idea that if I disclose to someone uh, something that I need, especially to someone who has that thing that I have been asking for, that is a sign of weakness, and we become prideful. I think of a need of maybe a job. It can be really difficult to go to someone who has a really good job and ask for prayer for a job, Right? <clears throat> and I'm reminded of families that I work with. Uh, maybe I have a resource that I'm trying to pr provide a family, and I ask them. They may refuse, or they may even become angry. But there is value in being vulnerable with those in our congregation. You see, by doing so, we are fostering this, this uh, deep relationship with our church family. It also gives our church family the opportunity to practice the, the spiritual discipline of prayer, and this can have a profound impact on other people's faith. Because if I tell you something that I have a need for, you begin to pray for me, and I pray for it, and I do receive that blessing, my faith is strengthened, but so is yours. Of which really hits home to the overall theme of all of this is this topic of intercession. Intercession means to intervene on behalf of another. And I believe it's safe to say that intercession is the character of God. He intercedes on our behalf by taking the human form of a little baby called Emmanuel, God with us, 
God the Father sees his creation in shambles and sends his son Jesus as this tiny infant. He then intercedes on our behalf 33 years later by bearing the cross, Paul writes in Romans 5 eight. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ interceded for us. And then Paul explains in Romans 8 that still to this day, Christ is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. He writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is inner seating for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? He is our intercessor, and as followers of Christ, we ought to imitate that sort of character. Our theme of Advent uh, is recapturing our wonder, and I pray that as our wonder is recaptured, that it's recaptured by a realization that we do have an intercessor through Christ. And of course, these things aren't the only examples of intercession in, the, in Scripture. There are countless stories of God interceding on behalf of his creation. However, as we enter this Christmas season and reflect on our Savior being born, I'm aware this season can also bring financial stress. For a season being all about prosperity, I know that it can also bring about a lot of struggle. And it's easy to focus on what we give others while also putting a little bit of focus on the lack of money in our bank accounts. And this is only amplified by looking around those to, uh, around us to see them live in excess while we live with such little. And in return, this can impact our faith negatively. So, what do we do when we feel like our faith is beginning to wane? Let's look at Mark 9.14. But before we do, I kind of want to give you a little bit of context of the story before uh, Mark 9.14 with the, the man and his son. Before this, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up this mountain. He takes these three disciples up this mountain. And this is where they, they experience a transfiguration of Christ. He's up on this mountain. The, the three disciples just look in awe as Christ's robes turn into this radiant white. And then they even see Moses. They see Elijah. He's talking with them. It's such a imagine being a Jew and during this time and seeing Moses and Elijah talk to Christ. I mean, just an incredible experience for these three disciples. They even hear the, the voice of God saying, "This is my son. Listen to him." And Peter, being Peter, <laughs> goes up to him. He's like, "Hey, can I make you a tent and Moses and Elijah a tent?" It says that he asked that question because he was terrified, which I can relate to. You ever been in a really socially awkward situation, and you just, like, talk? And you're just, like, asking random questions, and then, yeah, that's Peter here. But after they see this, they go down the mountain, and when they get to the bottom of the mountain, that's whenever Mark 9.14 begins. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. The crowd here, when they see Jesus, they run up to him. 
To which he has asked them, he's like, what are you guys arguing about with them? And a man speaks up. He says, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Let's unpack this. We have a man speak up during this squabble between the scribes and the other nine disciples. Um, again, Jesus is just getting down from the mountain with his other three disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, gets to the bottom of this mountain. The other nine disciples, which is kind of typical of them to be arguing with scribes, that's what they're doing. And this man speaks up. In his, most, in his desperation, he says, my son, my son needs your help, Jesus. And most of the symptoms that he's describing are symptoms of epilepsy. However, he also mentions that there's a, the demon or the unclean spirit is also causing his son to be mute. And this makes things a lot more complicated. And the reason why is in a uh, contemporary Jewish exorcism, you would first need to know the demon's name before you cast out that demon. That's why in Mark 5, whenever uh, there's a demon-possessed man kind of causing havoc on this little town, uh, Jesus asks the man, what is your name? And the demon responds, we are legion, for we are many. Jesus isn't just asking that man that the name of the, the demon just because. No, this is how a contemporary Jewish exorcism would have been uh, done. But here, we have a boy that is mute. He can't tell them what the demon's name is. Which, is that what the scribes and the disciples are arguing about, of how they go about it? We don't know. But what we do know is that, the, that this man is desperate for his son to be healed. That he speaks up amongst all of the arguing. The man then says, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. The disciples that he takes his son to were the, the other nine, of course, to which Jesus kind of calls out the disciples here. He says, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus' frustration is apparent here. And for good reason. You see, in Mark 6, a couple chapters before, Jesus just gave these same disciples the authority to cast out unclean spirits. Yet there's something here that is stopping them from being able to cast out this one. And I wonder if it's perhaps these disciples are relying on the contemporary way of casting out the demons instead of on the power of God, on the authority that Christ had given them. But Jesus is calling out these disciples' lack of faith, which is the theme of this whole passage. And we have this really interesting dichotomy here. Just earlier, we had these three disciples go on top of this mountain they experience the power of God, and as a result, their faith is strengthened. But then we have the other nine at the bottom of this mountain. They lack faith, and as a result, they don't experience the power of God. And after Jesus says this to the disciples, it says they brought the boy to him which scripture doesn't really explain why the father couldn't just get his son and go to them uh, himself. But I think it's a wonderful illustration of our, the needs in our own lives, things that we are burdened by. We help each other by bringing them to the Lord. We don't do it by ourselves. 
Jesus then asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And I love this question. This question is full of compassion. He's basically asking the father, how long have you been going through this? Tell me your story. Jesus doesn't need to know this, but he wants to know this. The second reason it gives us, the readers, uh, insight of the father's struggle. I think that we can be guilty of looking at scripture whenever Jesus performs a miracle. We only see the outcome of the miracle. We don't look at that, that individual that's going through that really troubling time and the struggle that they went through to get to this point. Guys, everything that this man has attempted hasn't worked. He has been trying everything to get his son clean from this, this uh, spirit. His faith had to be crushed. So much so that he even brings his, his son to the, those who walk with Jesus, and he brings it to them, and they also can't cast out this unclean spirit. Their faith had to be, or his faith had to be just absolutely destroyed. But then he brings him to the, uh, the greatest intercessor of all, Jesus. And he says, it's been happening since childhood. And we can safely assume it's been happening for a long, long time. He then says that this unclean spirit even tries to throw his son into fire and into water. His, this unclean spirit is literally trying to kill his son. And with all this in mind, you would have to think this man's faith was a little bit damaged. And this is reiterated in the hint of skepticism in his plea to Jesus. But if you can do anything, to which Jesus replies, if you can, he asks the Son of God, if you can do anything. And Jesus tried to, tries to encourage him again, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. A word of encouragement to the man, a subtle reminder to the disciples. And this prompts a response from the man that I think each and every one of us can relate to. Maybe something that you've been praying about for a long time, uh, but no results. We still have faith that God will come through for us, but our faith is beginning to wane. A desperate plea, the man cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. And I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says, while men have no faith... They are unconscious of their unbelief, but as soon as they get a little faith, then they begin to be conscious of the greatness of their unbelief. I believe this man is showing us what it's like to be vulnerable with, our, with others and how that can be a benefit to ourselves, especially in moments of desperation. He, is, he goes to Jesus and essentially asks Jesus to intercede on his behalf. And Jesus does intercede, and I can imagine that this really impacts this man's faith. Probably impacted the peoples around uh, the man too. But there's two things in the story that needed to be addressed. Number one, most obvious, this boy needed to be healed. He needed that spirit to be, um, uh, be casted out of him. But number two, the man's unbelief needed to be addressed as well. Spurgeon also notes, notice how he turned his whole attention to that one matter of his unbelief. He did not even mention his poor child. His child was, no doubt, still in his thoughts, yet his prayer was not concerning his child, but concerning his own unbelief. For he saw that that was a difficulty 
needing to be removed. And after this plea from the father, Jesus commands the unclean spirit, leave the boy's body and never enter him again. Scripture says the, the, the boy began to convulse violently and terribly uh, until all of a sudden he just stops. It was so shocking to the crowd that even looked at him and they were, he's dead. The boy is dead. The whole crowd was saying he's dead. Which I think is so interesting that even in the face of a miracle, the crowd's doubt was still present. And I wonder if the Lord is at work at our own needs that we've been praying about for a long time and we just can't see it yet. And we too can think the worst in our situation. Perhaps in this time of Advent, as we attempt to recapture our wonder, our lack of faith needs to be addressed first. After all of this, Jesus and his disciples enter a house. In the shock and all of their inability to cast out this unclean spirit, they, they ask Jesus, why weren't we able to do this? And Christ replies, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus makes his point that there's some things in your life that cannot be done without prayer. And in this case, it was the, the ability to cast out this type of unclean spirit. But I wonder if prayer is also the answer to tackle our own unbelief. The ability to be vulnerable and approach the Lord in times of desperation of our need requires faith. And we can confidently approach him with our needs knowing that he is quick to listen. May I submit to you that in your time of unbelief, that the prayer we ought to be praying is the prayer that the man desperately pleads to Jesus. I believe but help my unbelief. That, in our un unbelief, we ought to bring our needs to those that intercede on our behalf. I asked you a question earlier. I asked with the question, what is prosperity? In Psalm 73, the psalmist Asaph laments about those around him. He says in verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looks at those who aren't following the Lord and just how they're living in excess and makes them question a lot of things. But his conclusion, I believe, is a fantastic definition of what prosperity is to us as believers. I want to read you this psalm. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As we go through the struggles of life, when our faith begins to wane, I think it's important to reflect on this psalm. My flesh and my heart may fail, but my God is the strength of my, uh, of my heart and my portion forever. There's something symbolic here from the story of Mark 9. Whenever the child, Jesus reaches down, takes a child by the hand and lifts him up. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. 
you hold my right hand. To live in prosperity is to be in relationship with the Lord. And though we, l- we go through seasons where our faith is tested, and even when our hearts may fail, even whenever we lack belief, he is still our portion forever. Our Lord has interceded on our behalf and continues to do so. He is our portion forever. And we, bring, or we come together and bring each other's needs to the Lord because he is our portion forever. If I could have the worship team come up. If you would just allow me uh, to be vulnerable with you for a quick minute. Some of you know that my wife and I have been wanting to start a family. We have been praying about this for a while now. And we are believing that it'll happen, but I would be lying to you if I said the last couple of years haven't been really disappointing. I'm sure there's other couples in our church that can relate and maybe have even experienced this in the past. I find myself beginning to stop really even praying about it anymore. It's like I know that God can provide this, but I'm tired. Can you relate to that? I feel like everybody can relate to that, just being tired. Especially of those who, of you who have been praying about a health need for a long time. Maybe you've been praying about an over, overwhelming financial burden. The past couple of years have been really difficult. Well, last month during prayer time after service, I saw Bryce and Andy, part of the prayer team. I don't know why, but I felt the urge just to go to them and ask them to pray for us. You see, knowing Bryce and Andy, it was really nice to be vulnerable with them. If you don't know who they are, you need to. They're all amazing people. But I went to them essentially saying, hey, I'm beginning to lack faith in this. And I need you to have faith on my behalf. Because my faith is weak when it comes to specific need. And I can trust that you'll have faith on my behalf. Again, this is what intercessory faith is all about. Having each other during these difficult seasons of life is what makes things more manageable. And receiving those prayers from them, as well as the words of encouragement, strengthened my faith as I realized that I'm not alone in the struggle any longer. They told me some testimonies of some of their friends who have gone through uh, similar things and how God still provided. You see, the word, the Hebrew word for testimony is aduth, and it means God do it again with the same power and same authority. And as I have had time to reflect on it, I wonder if I am like the man in Mark 9, that my own unbelief needed to be tackled first. And friends, I'm believing now. I am praying God do it again with the same power and the same authority, whatever your will may be. And I also encourage you to be vulnerable with each other as well in your micro churches during prayer time. You may be praying for something for a long time and you're just kind of out of words of what to pray. 
one thing that you might uh, consider while you're praying is just to answer the question that the man had to answer from Jesus. Jesus asked him, how long have you been going through this? Maybe there's a a specific need in your life. How long have you been going through this? And you'll find yourself able to lament to God and to be, uh, just have an authentic conversation with him. And then you may even follow up that prayer with, I believe, but help my unbelief. Maybe you have been praying about a job that has been toxic to your mental health. I believe, help my unbelief. Or perhaps you're praying about finances during this difficult season. I believe, but help my unbelief. It is a vulnerable, authentic prayer that perhaps addresses another issue that you and I are facing, our lack of belief. And next, I would suggest to bring your needs to your microchurch or to our prayer partners. Again, as the story says in Mark 9, they brought the boy to Jesus. He didn't do it by himself. We don't bring our burdens to the Lord by ourselves. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And in a little bit, we are going to have prayer partners at the sides. And I would really encourage you just to, to be vulnerable and to go to them and ask for prayer. That's why they're there. And I know maybe you've been like me where you've been praying about it for a long time and you're tired, but just to get enough, a little bit of energy from the prayer partners, it's, it's extreme help. You don't have to bear your burden by yourself. They're here to intercede on your behalf. And during this Advent season, as we attempt to recapture our wonder, I pray that you find comfort that while you may be in a season of struggle, and maybe even your faith is beginning to wane, but He is still present. And even in our unbelief, He is still present. That He holds us by our right hand and leads us with His counsel. Sure, our hearts and our flesh, they may fail. But even then, He is our strength, and He is our portion forever. Let's pray. Father, we believe, but help our unbelief. Father, those who are tired, I just pray that you would give them rest. Father, as we are going into this season celebrating your birth, we just say thank you for for interceding on our behalf. And we, we thank you that you continue to do so. I just pray for peace and rest for those, God. And I also pray, God, that again, that you would just help our unbelief. Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks 
for listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church. Thank you.